0: Welcome guys and gals to the Man Talks Podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Before I introduce today's incredible guest, I just want to remind all the guys to head on over to the Facebook community. Join the Man Talks Facebook community. Uh, you can either search for it on Facebook just by going to Facebook and then type in the search field uh, Man Talks Community, or you can go to Facebook.com forward slash Talks dash community and check us out there. We talk about everything uh, from finances to fitness to fatherhood to mindset and relationships, masculinity, the whole thing. Uh, we've also got some great challenges in there. And uh, it's a great place to celebrate your wins and victories and see what some other men from around the world are up to and get support from them. So uh, head on over. It's totally free. And we've got, uh, oh, we've got over 3,000 guys in there now. So it's quickly, quickly grow- growing. Uh, so joining me today is just an incredible, incredible guy and has such a fascinating story and background. It's really one of the reasons why I wanted to uh, interview him is because when I first came across him and his book, I was not only interested in, in the concepts that, that he's written about. So he's written about, uh, initially wrote a book called Black Hole Focus, how intelligent people can create a powerful purpose for their lives and really how to focus in on that Um, But more recently, he's written a book called The Science of Intelligent Achievement, How Smart People Focus, Create, and Grow Their Way to Success. While these books are interesting in themselves, it really is Isaiah's story that caught my attention. So he received his doctorate in anatomy and cell biology and is an expert on mental focus, behavioral psychology, and career development. His work has been featured in The Guardian, Fast Company, and Entrepreneur Magazine. Uh, Isaiah's previous book, Black Hole Focus, was published by Wiley and & Sons and was selected as Business Book of the Month in the UK and became a business bestseller internationally. He has delivered corporate presentations for over 20,000 people, including over 300 workshops and keynotes worldwide in the past five years. Now, this, is, this all sounds cool and interesting, But his background and his story is far reaching. So, you know, growing up in the sort of Midwest and in the Pacific Midwest before going to do his doctorate, he was working on a sheep farm and was a sheep herder. And (laughs) I just was so fascinated by this, maybe because, you know, somebody like myself who was a classical singer and a construction worker before what I do today I always find it fascinating, you know, when when people have such an unorthodox background and have transitioned so dramatically in their life and in their career. So, you know, after sheep farming and sheep herding, he went on to become the founder and CEO of something called Cheeky Scientists, uh, a career training company that specializes in helping PhDs transition into corporate careers. And he's also director of Hankel Leadership. So, you know, he's done some really fascinating things. He's been invited to speak at institutions like Harvard Medi- Medical School, Stanford University, Vanderbilt University, University of Chicago, Oxford, uh, like you name it. Like this guy has been around and, and given some incredible talks. He's also got a TED Talk out. Uh, So he's got a very diverse background. And what we're going to discuss today is a few things. We are really going to dive first and foremost into his story and the sort of art of transition, you know, throughout our careers, because it's something that I've been fascinated with. And I see a lot of people out there that are struggling with transition in their career, you know, trying to figure out what's next for their business. Uh, really trying to transition, maybe in or out of a relationship. And transition is something that is very challenging for all of us, I think, you know. And by looking at somebody who transitioned from a very unorthodox past and unorthodox career into something as main stage as what Isaiah does today, I think it's just fascinating, it gives testament and, and insight to all of us on how we can manage that transition. So, uh, we're going to start with that, and then we're actually going to dive a little bit into intelligent achievement. And Isaiah has a little bit of a different approach to this, but it's a very uh, well-researched, well-articulated approach to how we can achieve things. And not only how we can, but the science and and psychology behind what makes people achieve things exceptionally well, effectively effectively. Uh, and and to maintain those achievements on a day to day basis. So, without any further delay, I just want to remind you uh, to to head on over to Apple Music or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you are listening to this. Uh, leave a review and and please, 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 man it forward. Share this podcast with somebody if you enjoy it because this is a good one. Uh, so share it out there. Tag me in it because I would love to give you a shout out for sharing the podcast. So thank you so much. And please welcome Doctor Isaiah Henkel. Great to be here, Connor. Yeah, this is, this is great, man. Well, listen, I mean, I've, I've heard a lot uh, about you and your work from so many different people and, uh, and uh, a couple of the guys in our community were really excited that you're coming on the podcast. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, to digging into your work.
1: Great. Yeah, I'd like to know who those people are.
0: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So let's kick things off with how we always do it here on the Man Talks podcast, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that I have noticed is that pain has this way of really clarifying your life. And I think most people, they make the biggest change in their life, and they have those defining moments after trauma, after pain. And that certainly was the case for me. I mean, the source of the pain can differ. It can be a divorce, whether your own or your parents. It can be a medical issue. It can be a a big breakup of some other kind, losing a job, right? Um, And this is when people's lives tend to seem like they're sinking and then they open up and, you know, making that choice to look at the opportunities that that pain brought is, is what really differentiates. I, I think people with a growth mindset from a limited mindset. And for me, it was a, a medical issue that happened when I was in graduate school and, uh, it was actually brought on by stress, but it was pretty serious, really. it was pretty serious symptoms. I had to do uh, CT scans, uh, just for like a year, a barrage of medical exams. They couldn't quite figure out what was wrong and then they finally figured it out and they weren't sure about it at first and and it was just uh it was a really traumatic moment because, you know, I was in my twenties. My you're in this state where you think you're kind of invincible. I wasn't used to dealing with facing my own mortality. My grandparents all lived to their nineties, except for one who was almost ninety. Um so I didn't, didn't have you know, I just didn't have experience in that area. And at the same time I was stuck in graduate school, so in the US, getting a PhD uh, requires you to get approval from basically like a like what you see on Shark Tank. But instead of five business people, it's like five doctors who have to say, yeah, you can leave and get your PhD and go work. And um, for whatever reason, the chair of my committee did not want me to leave. It was also my, my boss. So long story short, I, I felt really stuck where I was. I couldn't move my life forward. I had this medical diagnosis and I just kept having the, you know, all of these things kind of stack on top of me that made it feel like I could not move forward in my life. And the epiphany moment that I had was was it was I was it was late one night, I was by myself, feeling sorry for myself, feeling sorry for all the medical issues I was dealing with for not being able to put my career forward for, you know, making a graduate student stipend when most of my friends were getting like their first, you know, big salaries and buying houses and cars. I was watching a, a, a TV and I came across the movie Groundhog Day, right, with Bill Murray. And I'm watching this movie. And if you don't know what the movie is, basically, this supernatural occurrence happens where he wakes up and lives the same day over and over again, like literally the same day. And I said, This is my life. Like, I am living the same day over and over. Like, sure, it's not actually the same day, but I get up, I do the exact same thing, no progress, no growth whatsoever. And in the movie, it's this uh, this Bill Murray who plays a very sour guy so well in the beginning. He, he learns to essentially bloom where he's planted. And he keeps trying to escape the small town that he's stuck in that he can't get out of and has to live in over and over again. And so he just decides to read and learn and take up new things. He learns to play the piano. He starts reading classical novels. He starts helping other people. He joins organizations. Um, he becomes this really well-known man of the community. And that was the epiphany moment that I had. I said, you know what? my big It's a, one of my favorite quotes now, and I forget who said it, but your, it's your big opportunity might be where you are right now. And that's when I realized no matter what else is going on externally, no matter what I want to do, there's something I can do right here, right now with what I have in my hands that can make things better. And that's when I started actually writing my blog article. And long story short, that blog article has led to numerous opportunities. It's taken me around the world. It turned into uh multi-million dollar businesses. It's led to me speaking at some of the largest companies in the world, all because of, of that sticking point in my life.
0: Awesome. Very, very cool. And I mean, just to, just to back up a little bit, if you haven't watched Groundhog Day and you're listening to this podcast, man, oh man, I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know what to say about that. But, but you know, after this, uh, podcast episode definitely go tune in to groundhog day it's like corny but very insightful and just awesome and i mean it's bill murray you know how can you go you can't go wrong with bill murray it's just a,
1: nobody plays a better jerk than bill that's, murray I mean, he's that's, just, right. Yeah.
0: that's right it's almost like it's almost like a modern day scrooge you know in in, in some ways um very cool, and he played screw. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so I'm I'm super curious because one of the things that that really caught my attention, not just about your work, but about who you are, is you know you <laughs> you went from being uh, a sheep farmer in rural Idaho, and, you know, being being somebody who like struggled with ADD and ADHD, which I definitely uh, you know I struggle with a lot. I th- I think when I was young in grade two. I got diagnosed with ADHD and was put on like Ritalin. And I was probably like one of the only kids in my school who, you know, had that going on. And so I, I kind of felt like I was the the OG of AD, ADD, but, um, <laughs> but uh, you went from being a sheep farmer in rural Idaho, somebody who struggled with ADD to being a doctor of anatomy and in cell biology. So can you unpack that a little bit for me? Because that is, that seems like one hell of a journey.
1: I think you know this is another example of where your weakness is actually your uniqueness. It's it's what your strength is, and for me, you know, I think ADD is something that was invented by school teachers, you know, so they could deal with rowdy young men in particular. And I don't want you to get letters on that, but <laughs> of course, there are actual examples of you know cl- people clinically need ADD you know ADD medication to function. But it is definitely overprescribed, and it's basically a form of meth. And they're giving it to kids. And, and I, you know, I'm very fortunate that my my parents for me said no. We're not putting them on this medication. We just need to channel this energy. And that's what I learned how to do. Is I had this um, just un- 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 otherworldly levels of energy. I just always have in terms of you know not like I'm like rah rah bouncing off the wall cheerleader kind of energy, but like I always just want to be doing something and getting something done. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. And that's not a bad thing. And so it was, it was perceived as this weakness, but it was actually a strength. I, I graduated valedictorian in high school, all because I learned how to harness this energy and channel it into things. If I got bored with something, I would channel it into something else productive. But no matter what I was doing, I was channeling it into something that was good for me. I mean, not always, right? We're, we're all... Adolescent adolescence sometime, but channeling it over, you know, overall into good productive things versus negative things. And then the sheep farmer thing, that's another thing. Like you could say, oh, this is a weakness. This is somebody from, you know, I was, I lived, I grew up in very rural towns in Idaho, in Eastern Washington. Like uh, I, I did, I worked on farms, uh, Burns, Oregon, right? Uh, where else? Uh, Wyoming, <laughs> the fewest, People per square mile anywhere in in that state, I think, except for maybe Alaska. But it was it was seen as a weakness. Like, how would this person ever get ahead? How would they ever go to a good college? How how would they you know come out of anything other than you know poverty? We we were poor. Like I was on school lunch school lunches uh, my whole life. You know stuff like that. But again, this becomes a strength, and I'm so glad that I had that experience because it taught me the value of working hard, of work ethic, of of realizing that. You know, it made me not feel entitled to things that I think a lot of people are entitled for and instead realizing that, hey, if you want something, it's all on you. You have to go get it. If you didn't get something that you wanted, it's your fault. It's nobody else's fault. Everything that's happened to me, it's my responsibility in terms of the way that I respond to it. And I'm grateful for that. And, and you know, it's more practical things too, like getting up early to, to work, whether it was on the farm or paper routes and stuff I had. I think that's, that's really good for embedding a kind of work ethic that's lost on a lot of people today.
0: All right. So one of the things that I'm really curious about is life lessons from sheep farming. <laughs> yes. You know, you, you spent some some really interesting time there and I watched your TED Talk. And one of the things that you talked about was this, this concept that it only takes 5% of the sheep to move in a specific direction to actually get the rest of the herd to move. And I thought that was so interesting because I'm sure that that plays into you know human dynamics as well and, and and communities and how we actually move as a collective so i would love to hear some of your life lessons from sheep herding
1: well and that's a one thing that i talked about in my very first book black hole focus a lot and you're right i brought it up in the ted talk cuz this was fascinating to me i remember the day that i learned how to Herd sheep. It was the same day that the day I started as a farm hand on this particular farm uh, was the day that we were going to shear the sheep, and this is a big day. It happens once a year, and so there was they had they had about eighty head of sheep on that particular farm, and to get the sheep to move into this large pen that would get more and more narrow all the way down to just an opening for one sheep, and the shearer was on the other end, of course, right? So you had to get all of these sheep, and they're strong animals into this pen, and you would think that you know, that would be the difficult part, but it wasn't. It was really easy because you'd go out into the pasture where they were and you just get behind them and you bang a couple of sticks together. And only a handful of the sheep would hear the sticks at first, but they would take off running in the opposite direction towards the pen, And then the rest of the entire herd would follow. And so I was like, wow, sheep are really stupid. And so I started looking as I got older, you know, I looked into this because it was always fascinating to me. I was always drawn to experiments that looked at herd mentality. There's a, a bunch of famous experiments like uh, the ash experiments and, and some others that you can look up. But long story short, it's not just sheep that do this. Humans do it too. In fact, most animals, you only need about 5% of them moving when they're in a herd in a, in a direction. If they change directions, the rest of the herd will follow. And you've probably experienced this whether you've been at an airport or at a f- big fair or I don't know, like a, like a carnival, or a street concert anything, any concert, right? You're, everybody's in a big group. You can't see where you're going. And you just notice that you're going with the group. They go to the left or to the right. You go with them usually. And this kind of group dynamic has been studied a lot. There's group theory, swarm theory, right? Even for insects. And and what it means is that very often we are doing things that we don't actually want to do. We're just doing them because everybody else around us is doing them and we can't see ahead of where we're going, right? So we So as a reference point, since we can't see where we're going or we don't have... We haven't set a goal for ourselves as a reference point. We just follow what everybody else is doing. And and that's the part that fascinated me. And that's what I learned originally um, on the farm.
0: Very cool. Yeah. And I feel like some of that plays into, and it's almost like a good segue of some of the things that I wanted to talk with you about today. One of the things that you talk about in your latest book uh, is about fake success. Your latest book, The Science of Intelligent Achievement. Um, I thought it was really interesting. You, you kind of start off with this maybe concept or idea of fake success. Can you unpack that a little bit? Because I think that almost plays great with what you just sort of uh, unpacked there for us.
1: Yeah, and and this is the the f- both the fascinating thing to me, and and something that kind of embarrasses me because this this book, The Science of Intelligent Achievement, it's my second book. You know, I wrote Black Hole Focus, and I, you know, there's a large part of that book talks about herd mentality and some of these things we just discussed. And I thought, you know, OK, I understand this, which means I'm immune to it just because I I understand it. However, after my first book got published, you know, I was flying all over speaking at, at these corporate events. I'd started uh, doing a a couple of like side hustle businesses. You know, my blog has started to take off, but I was I was also working for large corporations and I was kind of like living that Corporate life, and I thought that I had made it. I mean, I was basically living the life of—if you've ever seen—to reference another movie, Up in the Air with George Clooney, right? This guy who's just is is on the move all the time, has access to all the best stuff in terms of hotels and you know first class seats and everything, and and you know I thought this was success, and I thought that. It was success, not because it's something that I really had mapped out for myself or thought carefully about, um, or really dug deep into, but it's because it's what I saw as a man being successful. I thought, Hey, you know, a uh, high powered position. Uh, I have subordinates I- I w- with what I'm doing. I have some stuff I'm working on on the side. I have my own book. I'm traveling around in suits, sitting in first class, you know, getting upgrades at hotels. This is it. I win. And I actually had another moment. Um, it was another a medical issue that happened uh, about five years after the one I t- talked about before that. And and again, it was a big eye opener. And, and what was amazing and, and and why I think pain is so powerful is because I didn't learn the same lesson that I learned the first time. This time when I was again faced with my own mortality, I learned a completely different lesson. I learned that I had been chasing these these fake markers of success. You know, I, I was I was smack dab in the middle of fake success, as as I call it in the book. And and going back to your original question, and but this there was nothing intelligent about this. Like I didn't sit down and logically map out what I wanted to have a a complete life, um, to have a full life, to have a life that would bring me continual growth in every area of my life. Instead, I had fallen into the trap. Even though I had I knew about herd mentality, i had fallen into the trap of just trying to look important, right? Trying to match other people's values, things that I saw. I I fell into the trap of groupthink in short, uh, especially for men. And it wasn't until I I, I had this, again, one of these clarifying moments that I said, you know what? I actually want to do more. Um, I want to do something more meaningful, something where I can have a larger impact. I I want to uh, help other people, I want to help kids I want to uh, I want to have my own kids, I want to have a family. I want to uh, start my start a business that makes a difference in a way where I 'm involved in it, not just where I'm flying here or there and saying the same thing over and over again. and what came out of that was again a lot of opportunities that I would have never saw had I not had that clarifying moment. you know. I, uh, since then, I was able to start a foundation for, for kids uh, to help overcome uh, neurodegen- neurodegeneration in kids. I, I was able to start my own businesses and get out of the corporate world, but at the same time, stay connected to the corporate world and stay connected to science, which I wanted to. That for me was intelligent success. Intelligent being like I designed it. It was something that was embedded with who I was. It was embedded in my purpose, my own values. It wasn't just a reflection of what you know, I thought the the world wanted to see in me.
0: Mm, yeah, I I really appreciate that, and I and I think that a lot of people, you know, both men and women can can definitely relate with that. You know, going down a path that might not be our own. Yes. You know, based on based on societal pressures, based on family pressure, based on you know what our peers think we should be doing, et cetera, et cetera. Like the list just goes on and on. And I think that. I, I feel like almost everybody goes down this path in some way, shape or form of doing something or being someone that's not authentically them to learn what that actually looks like, to, to learn what it actually is for them to uncover success. So do you feel like that's part of the process or, or is there a way in which we can start to define what our sort of authentic version of success actually is for ourselves before we, you know, sort of go down the pathway of learning the hard way?
1: I don't, I do not think there is. And I've looked into the, you know, I've looked into research on this into behavioral psychology. I've looked into, uh, you know, uh, biology, uh, of many different types, whether it's, uh, I mean, lots of different theories are on it. Right. Um, in psychology about whether or not people can have these radical changes without pain. And I do not think it's possible. I think you have to experience pain. Now, some people, they have methods for helping you tap into the pain before you experience it so it can trigger a change. That's the closest that I've seen in terms of working, right? So if you really meditate on everything that if you like, so if you're doing something wrong right now, you know, you're headed in a wrong direction. Most people will evade reality and ignore that and ignore everything bad that's going to happen. All of the consequences, the risks, right? Because there's not a, a sense of urgency. It's like, well, it could get worse later, but right now it's not really harming anybody. Right, and as I'm saying this, I'm realizing, wow, there's like three or four things in my life right now that I am evading reality with that I could probably be doing even better. And you know, it comes down to things that are tougher to define, like what's your intention? What is your intention in this case? And a lot of times we will ignore a bad intention, we will evade reality until things get so bad that we have one of these traumatic moments that helps us get back on track. Your question is, can you get back on track, have a clarifying moment without the trauma? I. I don't think you can in the same way. I think your best bet is is to do, and, and there's a name for this. I forget what it's called, but you basically you meditate on everything bad that's going to happen to you and all how you're going to affect everybody around you if you continue down the bad path that you're starting on, um, and that takes discipline. There's you know th- uh, some practical things you could do is, is journal, right? Journal about this kind of stuff. What what can happen. If you continue down this path, are your intentions pure? If they're not, write it down, write down what will happen if you continue on that. So you get a taste of the pain before it it, it turns into, you know, abject trauma.
0: Yeah, no, I think, I think that's great. And one of the things that I think you're talking about is being able to tune into the future that you're creating for yourself, you know, and being able to sort of go down that pathway and say it's, I call it the default future. I'm not too sure what other people would refer to it as, But it's it's this, we have this default future that we're living into that we see ourselves creating. And we need to get in touch with whether or not that's the future that we actually want to be creating for ourselves in our relationship, in our work, in the products that we're creating, in the services that we're designing, and all those different pieces. And to start to tune into that space and then be able to decide what parts fit into. What fulfills us and what brings us joy, and you know how we want our lives to look, and what parts actually don't fit into that at all, and and to start to to make decisions from that place. And it's it's kind of funny. Like I just gave a talk in front of a few thousand people uh, at an event with Gary Vaynerchuk, and my talk was all about finding purpose. And it's kind of funny because I talked about failing your way to purpose, and and how oh. I had basically found my purpose in life by just repeatedly failing and doing just like the craziest things and dumbest jobs to sort of narrow down the pathways that I've, I wanted to go. It wasn't intentional. It by no means was intentional at the time, but it was almost like bowling with the, with the uh, blockers up on the side. and The ball sort of bounced off and then eventually started to find, you know, a, a middle pathway uh, that was really aligned with with who I feel I am and what I want to be doing in life, and so it almost describes like it almost feels like what you're describing is this being okay with failing or putting ourselves in in a place where we can mentally and cognitively see the failures that could potentially be happening in our life, and then start to rein in from there to create our version of success.
1: Absolutely, and you know, I, I think you're right. It's it's not a magic formula. The the more you do, the more stuff you try, the more risks you take, the more you're going to fail, and that failure is going to cause pain, but it's also going to cause change. And so there's this close relationship between pain and change. And and over time, you realize that you know, the pain is worth it <laughs> and you stop being afraid of the pain. And I think this is where people start growing at a, at a much faster rate. You always see, uh, you know, you might have a friend or a cousin or somebody in your life where all of a sudden, you know, you haven't seen them in a year or two and they're just in a, a completely, uh, another place in their life, right? They've just leveled up dramatically and you're like, what happened? And it's because they just embraced that pain. They took some risks. They got used to it. They're not even phased by it, right? They don't get intimidated anymore. They see intimidation as a sign that they're headed in the right direction. And I think that's what you're talking about. And it makes complete sense. Mm,
0: Yeah, exactly. So, so what is, if you can unpack, what is intelligent achievement? Because I feel like this is definitely an important part to understanding our personal versions of success.
1: Right. So intelligent achievement comes down to really three things. And, and these are the, the, the three things that made the difference for me in terms of, okay, when I was on the wrong track, I was basically just trying to, you know, maintain my image, look good for other people, replicate other people's values and, and be successful in that way uh, versus doing what I knew at my core. I wanted to do in every area of my life and, and having that kind of alignment and, and what the, the, the differences were the same three parts of the book that the, that the book is broken into. So the science of intelligent achievement, the first section is selective focus. The second section is creative ownership. And the third section is pragmatic growth. Now, you know, and those things, those things, uh, you know, the, the the words were carefully chosen, right? So it's not just, for example, for the first section, it's not just focus, but it's selective focus. You can focus on anything. You can have great focus, but be focusing on all of the wrong things, right? You can be focused on fixing all of your, your friends who are, you know, drama queens, drama kings, whatever. They're always sucking you into something that doesn't matter. And that's not, being selective with your focus. That's just rushing in and trying to help people that really need to help themselves and you need to stop being a crutch for them. Uh, you need to be deliberate with who you let into your life, right? You need to be selective with who you let into your life. You also need to be selective with what you let into your life. Where are you spending your time? What activities are you doing? How much time are you wasting? How much of your most valuable resource are you wasting? And what is your most valuable resource? Mental energy. Um, and, and so the first section really focuses on that. Uh, the second section, and we can come back to these these later. I'll just give a quick overview here. The, the second section, creative ownership, comes down to the question of how much of your happiness and success is dependent on somebody else, right? And if, you, if you're if you honest with yourself, and if you're listening to this, you're probably thinking, oh yeah, uh, my success, actually my entire career success is dependent on what one boss thinks of me or what two or three people at the office think of me that have complete control of whether or not I get promoted, right? That is a dependent situation. You cannot reach your full potential in life when you're that dependent. Maybe your happiness is completely dependent on whether or not somebody else at home is happy when you get there. right? If they're having a bad day, you're having a bad day. You are not meant to live like that. You're not meant to be dependent like that. So creative ownership is about making yourself more independent, giving yourself more options. It's not about anti-commitment, but it's about being committed to the right things in the right way and having options, especially for today's world and today's economy. And then the third section is about pragmatic growth, In today's world, right, everybody has a has a blog, has a podcast, everybody's an entrepreneur, right? All the you know, everybody has they have their, their pie in the sky dream and they're everybody's faking it because they think if they fake it enough, they're gonna make it, right? And so what this has led to is that a lot of people will talk all day about all of the great things that they're doing, because it's very easy to fake that you're doing great things. You can just put up, you know pictures on Facebook. You can get all the money out of your bank account and lay it out on the bed and take a picture of it and act like you're rich. Right? You can you can fake things like never before. So as a result, we're all just again, we're in the clouds, but we're not rooted in reality. And that's where that pragmatic growth comes in. You have to be able to roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty. You have to be willing to do the nitty gritty work that it takes to get ahead. You have to be able to respond to feedback, even negative feedback. You can't just keep telling yourself you're successful if you've started a business and it's losing money every month. Okay. Or if you've started a blog and nobody's reading anything that you're writing, you need to be able to look at the feedback, respond to it, measure and manage your progress in a pragmatic way. I
0: love it, man. I I love it. And it's really interesting because (laughs) I wanted to, I I really wanted to crack a joke there, uh, about laying all the money out on the bed (laughs) and just taking photos of it and how that's basically like my Instagram profile. Um, It's not. It's not because, you know, that would be absurd. And it kind of reminded me of the scene from Breaking Bad where there's just like that giant stack of money and the guy like lays back on it. It's turned into like a very mainstream uh, meme and gif now. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's that's I like that approach, you know, the the pragmatic approach of, of really being able to look. Uh, objectively at the results you're getting and, and be able to to shift and, and shift the focus. But let's let's just back up the train a little bit and and look at selective focus, because I think that this is something that, you know, people like yourself or myself who, you know, have a ton of energy and maybe struggle to focus on a consistent basis or on a regular basis. And it's something that we've had to cultivate in our lives. What are some of the things that you would say are extremely important when it comes to Uh, really cultivating this sense of selective focus. And you talk about, you know, how busyness leads to burnout and manipulation and, you know, other people's opinions, uh, you know, affecting us and impacting us. How do we start to narrow, uh, not narrow, but how do we start to hone in on our focus and and have it be a little bit more laser-like?
1: Well, the first step is making it a priority, right? Most people just do not realize that you are going to follow your priorities. And I, I hate the word values, even though I've used it, because values, you can have 15 different values, but it doesn't mean anything, right? Unless they're prioritized. Have you ranked them? And believe it or not, you are following in your life a list of ranked values right now. And, and a, a ranked value is a priority. So uh, th- this is an important concept that's discussed in, in the new book. But in terms of what your number one priority is, in life, it's your mental energy, right? So another way that I put it, and this is how I frame it in the book is what is your most valuable resource? Most people would say time or money. We've heard that ad nauseum, right? And it's not, it's not time because if you've ever been so exhausted at the end of the day that you've watched your favorite movie again, or you've watched a bunch of random clips on YouTube, right? You know that time's not your most valuable asset. We've all wasted time before because we've been too exhausted. If you have ever bought something you didn't need, and we all buy things we don't need. I'm sorry we do, especially if you're listening to this in the US, right? If you have a both a watch and a Fitbit and a phone, right? You've bought things you don't need. <laughs> like You only really need one of those. Uh, so, Money is not your most valuable asset. And one thing we hear a lot about today is your network, right? Your network is your net worth. And that's catchy and that's great, but it's not your most valuable asset. Why? Because all of us have wanted to meet new people or give more to our relationships or build even stronger relationships, but we were spread too thin. We had too many obligations. We didn't have the energy to do so. And so what your your most valuable resource is, the real limiting factor of where you go in life and how much you do is your mental energy. And I heard it put a really good way. I think it was Dave Asprey that said something like this. And uh, it's what put me on this entire track into digging into the research on this. It's, you know, your question shouldn't be, how can I get more hours in the day? That's what most people ask themselves. Your question should be, how can I get so much more energy in the day, mental energy specifically, that I can get done in a minute, but it takes somebody else an hour to do. And if you look at the data on this, it's really fascinating. It's almost like it's like the theory of relativity applies to mental energy during the day in that. And there's a great review from in the Harvard Business Review on this that, that breaks down the studies. But what it essentially shows is that everybody has about 90 to 120 minutes of peak mental energy during the day. And for most people, it's after the first or second hour of waking up. Okay. And then overall during the day, you have about three to five hours of near peak mental energy where you're running at about 80 to 90%. And that's it. The rest of the day, you're looking at 50, maybe 60, and it goes down sharply from there. Like most people are done mentally in terms of what they can do from about 1 p.m. onwards. And, And by what I mean, what they can do is at that elevated rate. Now, here's the cool part. During that peak mental energy state, you are four to five times more productive. And this has been measured in a a variety of ways, both quantitatively and qualitatively. You're four to five times more productive. So you're literally getting more done during every minute uh, of of those peak hours. Now, here's the problem, right? Most people, let's say they wake up, whatever, six, seven, they're going to hit their peak mental energy around 9 a.m., 10 a.m. Where are they at usually? They're at the office answering emails, they're spending their peak mental energy going through emails, helping other people push their agendas forward and not pushing their own agendas forward. They're wasting that mental energy. So again, to close the loop here, one of the most important things you can do is realize that your mental energy is the most important asset that you have and to start protecting it and using it for the things you want to do that in your life, your biggest personal goals. That might mean waking up an hour or two earlier so that your mental energy levels are peaking while you're home and in your own space. So you can work on a project on your own for an hour, which is really going to be like working on it for four to five hours because you're in that peak mental energy time before you go to the office. So if you start thinking like that, that is one of the most powerful game-changing things.
0: Very cool. Very, very cool. And yeah, I mean, I've, I've read some of that research and it's quite interesting to start to create routines or habits or just sort of like mornings that fit into that and that and that you are prioritizing uh some of your own work whether it's you know for the company that you work for or just your own personal growth and development into that space so that's incredible um, one of the things that i found really interesting about this this part of you know the concept of focus was how much you actually hone in on people and personal relationships and you know you, you talk quite a bit about you know other people's opinions uh, and small minded people, you know blocking big goals. Um, and but the one thing that really stuck out was was the concept of the scientific proof that fifty percent of your friendships are fake. And I okay. would just love to pause there. And and have you unpacked that for us? Because I think that that is so fascinating.
1: Yeah, it, it's based on this study that was done at um, MIT and uh, Tel Aviv. And what it showed is, is what it looked at specifically was reciprocal relationships, right? Basically, a, a friendship that goes both ways. And what it found was, is that most people think that the relationships that they're in, their friendships are reciprocal. They think that, about, I think it was about 90% or more of their relationships they think are reciprocal but when they actually measured them in terms of just at you know qualitatively quantitatively what was being added in terms of value back and forth only half of them are reciprocal the other half were just like the relationships that most of us uh, i guarantee have right now where it's a friend where they're not really a big priority to us we we have a hard, maybe have a hard time admitting that they give a lot to us and we don't give much back to them or it's a, that friend that we give a lot to, like that person we really like. We're trying to, you know, bring the friendship closer, and we add a ton of value, and they had nothing in return. No matter how how hard we try, and we we live with these kind of fake friendships and relationships all the time, and we rarely do an audit of our friendships because, again, just like the the scientific study showed, we think we just naturally think, oh yeah, it's a friend, it's mutual. But if you looked at the data, so to speak, if you looked at the value that's being added back and forth, you would see that you can let go have half of those relationships. And why is that important? Because they're taking up your mental energy, right? Imagine if you let all of those fake friendships go and spent all of that energy that you saved from letting those French, those fake friendships go and, and spent it on your real friends. or spent it on gaining new friends that would make you a priority as well.
0: So, so interesting. I, I mean, it's fascinating because it just it makes sense, and I look back at at my life and other people's lives, you know. And the moment that they sort of get very real about the people in their life that were just taking up a lot of time and energy, it creates this this space and this momentum for them to shift that focus and shift that energy onto not I don't want to say bigger and better things, but onto the real priorities in their life. And I'm assuming that that kind of plays into this uh, the second concept with is which is in around creative ownership. So how how do we start to move into a space of, especially with success and, and achievement, starting to take, you know, what, what you've defined as creative ownership uh, o- over these parts of our life?
1: Yeah. And before you go there, I just want to follow up on one thing that you said. You know, a key part of identifying which friendships are fake is to take a to go on what I call as a relationship fast. And this is a key chapter in the book, and it's been one of the most read chapters. Like on Kindle, you know how it shows the highlighted sections that most people have. Most of the highlights are in this particular chapter. Uh, why you need to go on a relationship fast. And it's really hard for us to gain emotional clarity without first gaining distance. And it doesn't have to be this big thing. It it shouldn't be something that you make, you know, like a dramatic declaration. I'm going on a relationship fast. And you tell everybody, you know, this instead, you can just tell people that, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm taking a, a, I'm going unplugged for a few days. I'm going to gain some perspective. And just doing that just for a few days is going to show you very, very quickly who belongs in your life and who doesn't. It's also going to show you where you need to remove yourself, right? Because you can't keep being a crutch for other people. You cannot keep somebody in your life that's not a priority to you just because you're a priority to them. Um, So I think going on that relationship fast is crucial to do, and it is the first step. And then once you do that, you're going to see which relationships should stay in your life and which um, should not stay. This is at the end of that first section. And then right after this, it does go into Creative ownership. Um, But the only time, the the only way you're going to have space and mental energy to create something on your own is if you do this first step. You have to audit your life and see where you're wasting your mental energy. In terms of creative ownership, to answer your question, you know, it is no longer a luxury to be independent and to have options, both uh, in terms of your career and your finances, Um, it's now a necessity. Uh, I can tell you that you know i 've worked for very large companies, and no matter how important you think you are to your company, um, nothing is more important to a company than its bottom line because if that bottom line is in the red for too long, that company 's not going to exist and what does this mean? It means that no matter who you are how high up in a company you are you 're not a a linchpin. okay you never are. you can be let go. nobody is not expendable at a company and, and this is important to know because one of my uh, one of my somebody who's, who 's who was an early person to to get a copy of the book is James L and I saw him do a talk on um, how everybody is a temp or an entrepreneur now and after I heard that talk you know it was a fascinating talk after I heard that talk, I started digging into the data and I found that you know what most people now it's very it's very, very different in the economy now most people either are hired in part-time positions. Why part-time? Because then the company doesn't have to pay benefits. Then they don't get themselves in a precarious financial position. Um, then they don't have to give them office space. A lot more people are working for companies and just working from home remotely. right? So you're like a temp employee or you're an entrepreneur who started a business. But in many cases, you're what I call in the book is an entre-employee. So you'll work for a company and they'll hire you if you have that entrepreneurial spirit, because they realize how important that is today in the economy. And at the same time, it allows you to have a side hustle, right? And this is something I know you mentioned Gary Vee earlier. He talks a lot about having a side hustle. It's crucial, right? He talks a lot about doing, you know, what are you doing from, I think you're 7 to 2 AM, right? You're 7 PM to 2 two AM after you're off work. And And this is how things work nowadays. And it's, it's, It's powerful because what does it do? It makes you less dependent on one job, right? Losing a job is supposed to be as stressful as a divorce. It's supposed to be as stressful as a death in the family. Studies have shown this, but it doesn't need to be this way anymore if you start developing other avenues of income in your life. And, And the same goes, not just for finances, but also for your relationships. Like you cannot allow yourself um, to be completely dependent on one person to fulfill all of your needs, because no one person can do that. And there's this misconception now that whether it's a romantic relationship or a friendship, that the people in our lives should supply each and every one of our needs. It's just not the case. And, and you can't live that way because it's going to lead to dependence, codependence, and disaster.
0: Yeah. it's. I mean, so, so very true. So, so very true. And I think uh, you know, the more that, that people can tune into that. It's it's interesting, right? Because I think for a long time, we've been told to focus in on one thing and one thing only, you know, whether it's your career, whether it's your art form, you know, whether it's the, the business that you've created and to only focus in on that one thing and nothing else. And now it seems to be a, a very big trend to, uh, you know, have, have multiple streams or multiple forms of creativity, of, of entrepreneurship, of, of work. And uh, you know, I'm not too sure what the data is. But you know, most the majority of 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 millionaires actually have several forms and several streams of income. And so, I think this this is so true because it it starts to give you this foundational piece of feeling okay. You know, if one of those streams starts to fall apart or isn't working anymore. And it creates just a, a deeper sense of stability. So, any insight, just really quick, before we move on to the the pragmatic growth, growth side of things, of how people can start to curate and, and cultivate this part uh, this part of themselves.
1: Yeah, the, the first thing and the simplest thing to do is just start working on a personal project of some kind, something that you can completely control the progress of, and that could be, you know, for a lot of people, it's starting a blog that's related to something that. You know, the world needs information that is aligned with their expertise or to a need in the world. It could be writing a book or your first ebook, right? Just learning how to manage a project on the scale of a book is is very, very important. Um, so that's, that, that's one of the simplest things you can do. It could be, you know, starting a nonprofit or, or volunteering something that is just yours and is not dependent on your boss or somebody else, something that you own completely. And, and we often in today's world think of ownership as a bad thing. It's not. It's a, it's a very powerful thing. It'll give you a sense of independence. It'll give you a sense of, it'll sharpen your sense of initiative and of growth. And, and it's, it's the first step.
0: Awesome, love it, love it. So let's let's move into the the idea of pragmatic growth, and and I like this because I think a lot of times we talk about growth, but but most people talk about growth from this very like motivational rah rah inspirational space, and oftentimes when that motivation or inspiration is lacking. It's challenging for people to feel like or be able to observe that they're making growth. So where do we start with pragmatic growth? What's what's sort of like the foundational components of it?
1: The foundational components is that creating a goal, having a vision is only as good as the, how the vision is anchored in reality <laughs> is, and, and not in somebody else 's reality or not in the fact that you need to have realistic go- goals, but you need to put you know where, where the rubber meets the road right where does that vision that goal where does it get its its roots right a lot of us uh, one of my favorite quotes i forget it 's uh, you know it 's okay to have your head in the clouds as long as you have roots in the ground or something like that, and that 's really what it comes down to and I think a lot of people when it comes to goals they 've forgotten the pragmatic side they 've forgotten the side of that has them respond to feedback, to look at reality. That has them measure and manage their growth. You know, one of the very first businesses that I started was a, a greeting card company, and I was really excited about this because it was an outlet for you know my creativity or the creativity I thought that I had. And I, I was like, this is going to be successful. Uh, I, I, you know, every indicator was telling me it's not going to be successful. There's too many greeting cards. I didn't have a good plan at all, but I just said, this is fun. I want to do it. I love it so much. Other people have to love it. And I launched it. I spent thousands of dollars on it. I took out like these big magazine ads, like actual physical magazine ads. uh, That's, you know, other data that I was ignoring (laughs) um, was that I should have been marketing online. And it bombed completely. It lasted for like a couple of months. I just wasted all of this money. I learned a lot from it. Great learning experience. But it was an example of... Not being pragmatic, like I was evading reality, and this is something a lot of us do. We want something so bad, or we like something so much, that we essentially we ask, we answer the question for ourselves: Do I like this? Do I want this to work? It's an easy answer. It's yes. Instead of asking the the deeper, more, more pragmatic questions of what does the data say? Right? Have I looked at all of the feedback? Have I gathered a, a, enough feedback? am i responding appropriately what could go wrong here those kind of pragmatic questions need to be asked and it has its roots in a lot of things that you're seeing become more popular today you know you see a lot on stoicism today a lot on you know stop just being overly emotionally excited and positive about everything like actually look what, at what could go wrong stop evading reality because this will allow you to change course and to be successful in the long run
0: love it Love it! I, it's so good and, and so true. I think when I look back, and you know, Steve Jobs said you can only connect the dots backwards. But when I when I look back at my life, I really am present to how the majority of the failures that I've experienced uh, have come through me avoiding reality, avoiding uh, the the truth of a specific relationship or hmm. situation or uh, you know job, like whatever whatever the situation was but just ignoring that truth. And so yeah, I think there's so, there's so much honesty and, and relevance in what way of saying to that. So one last thing, because I know that we're almost at a time here that I wanted to just get, I was so curious about is how the theory of relativity uh, plays into the law of relaxed productivity. Cause I'm a big science guy and I would love, love to hear how you <laughs> tied these two things together. Uh, so let, let's just go there and, and we'll, we'll end there.
1: Well, I, I wish there was, was uh, relating to Einstein's, uh, theory of relativity, but it's more related related to the relativity that we talked about before in terms of that certain hours during the day, you are more productive. You literally can get four to five times as much done during your peak mental energy hours as you can during other times during the day. And what that's tied to in terms of the law of relaxed productivity, it's this Abraham Lincoln quote that is very applicable to to life today. And it's uh, to to paraphrase, I don't know if I'm going to say it exactly right. He says, if I had six hours to chop down a tree, I would spend the first four sharpening my ax. And Part of being successful or productive comes down to balancing effectiveness and efficiency appropriately with the right ratio. You'll have one camp say, it's just about being effective. Don't worry about efficiency. Effectiveness is everything. But that's not true because effectiveness is not scalable. To scale or to create a system, there has to be some level of efficiency, right? So to put it in terms of chopping down a tree, if you just wanted to be 100% effective and didn't care about efficiency, you would spend five hours and 59 minutes sharpening your ax. And then you would chop at the tree like a wild person, probably giving yourself a heart attack or chopping off your leg. Okay. That is not ideal. That's the 100% effectiveness argument. The other argument is that you should just be efficient. Efficiency is important. This was really big in the 80s and the 90s. Um, But if you're just efficient, that equals to having a dull blade on your axe, right? So not sharpening your axe at all and just chopping the tree in the exact same location, being very efficient, but chopping with a dull blade. So it's actually going to take you a very long time to chop down the tree. The ideal ratio is what Abraham Lincoln said four hours sharpening your ax, which would be four hours of optimizing effectiveness, right? And then two hours for efficiency, chopping the tree in the same position over and over with the sharpest ax possible given that ratio. So it's two to one. So balancing effectiveness versus efficiency, you want to do it at a two to one ratio, two times as much effectiveness, or in other words, effectiveness is twice as important. And I think if you think about it that way, if you let that sit, especially you know if you're starting a business or if you're an entrepreneur or if you're trying to scale anything in your life, um, this will make a lot of sense to you. They're both important, but effectiveness is twice as important as efficiency when it comes to being productive.
0: Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I think those principles and just so many of the principles in this, in this book are so relevant and, and so consumable. So uh, listen, Isaiah, thank you so much for for being on the Man Talks podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Connor. I really enjoyed it. Wonderful. Well, for the rest of the listeners, definitely head on over. Check out uh, Isaiah's book, The Science of Intelligent Achievement, How Smart People Focus, Create, and Grow Their Way to Success. Uh, it is an incredible book with just some really, really solid principles uh, that I think will help with any form of achievement and any form of success and helping to find that success. So uh, that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to the man talks podcast. Definitely head on over uh, to iTunes, to Apple music, Apple podcasts. Uh, Don't forget to leave us a review and a rating. We are now on Spotify. So if you're a Spotify person, you can tune into us and subscribe there uh, or stitcher. So thank you so much. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. This is Connor Beaton signing off.